Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. So, Professor Mike Levin, thank you so much for being with us at the Stem Cells at Lunch Digested. I enjoyed your talk very much yesterday. Tell us a little bit about your research. Well, thank you very much, and I'm uh, really happy to be here. My research focuses on understanding how cells and tissues make decisions, and in particular, both anatomical and functional decisions. So cells have to get together in a kind of collective intelligence to build specific structures. They can repair them during regeneration and so on. And all of this has to be functional, so it has to be able to act in the real world and have evolutionary adaptive uh, function. So my group uses a variety of techniques from computer science, from developmental biology, from biophysics, cognitive science, to try to understand uh, how cell collectives uh, decide what to build and how they build various complex structures. You've brought together very different disciplines. So how did you go about kind of creating your own niche that combines ways of working that are traditionally more silent in research scientists? Yeah, my background is computer science, and I was interested from, from a very early age in this question of mind and body. So how is it that some types of bodies can support cognitive functions? And it always seemed to me that embryogenesis regeneration processes had a lot to teach us, both from the perspective of understanding how this works, how it got here during evolution, and very importantly, in engineering, in terms of making novel senses, whether it be through robotics or pure software. But the idea is, you know, if we can understand how specific types of bodies underlie different types of cognitive abilities, we should be able to make them ourselves. And so my research program is very much both looking backwards in terms of evolution and how these things got here, but also looking forwards to being able to engineer them ourselves and thus learn something very important about how all this works. And so that's kind of my background originally, and I've pulled everything into the study of this problem because I really do think by nature it's a very multidisciplinary problem. It doesn't make any sense to try to silo this in, in, into a sp one specific discipline. And culturally, what's your secret to, to speak different languages to different type of scientists? Like, for example, I remember being invited to Saifu at Google, and for three days you're kind of speaking with scientists to do completely different things to you. So you, you kind of tap into your, your public outreach skills a little bit, or you try to simplify concepts. And, and also there is a risk that people tell you you're too much of an engineer to be a biologist or too much of a biologist to be an engineer. So how, what's your secret to sort of bring this together the way you've done? Well, I don't know if I have a particular secret, although you're absolutely right, interdisciplinary effort is not always rewarded. And I mean, nowadays, I think it's more popular and think people tend to say, yeah, we need, you know, multidisciplinary science and all of that. Back when, when I was starting out, that it certainly didn't seem that obvious to a lot of people that this, that this was a good idea, for sure. And I, I'm not sure I have a secret, but what I do is, and, and I do this in, inside my own lab, because we have biologists, we have computer scientists, we have all sorts of different, different disciplines in my, in my group. And one of those things I try to do and try to teach others to do is to be very clear about picking the right level of abstraction when you're speaking to anybody. And so actually computer scientists are particularly good at this because they're very good at modularizing and black boxing things and, and asking, okay, what, what is it that you actually need to know and what can we hide sort of internally? And so I try to make sure, for example, that when my biology students talk to the computer scientists, they don't start out by saying, well, you see, there's this gene, there's this, you know, BMP7 and what it does, is, because that means nothing to computer scientists. And so what they need to do is think more deeply. And that's why I think it's a useful tool because it makes you think more deeply about your own work. It asks you to think about 
okay, what am I really saying, right? These are the details, but what, what are the symmetries? What's the underlying message here? What's talking to what? What's processing information? What is it measuring? What, what are the decision points that the system is trying to do? How stable is it? What kind of perturbations is it supposed to you know, be able to overcome? Those are the kinds of things it makes sense to have an interdisciplinary discussion about, whereas the details, maybe not so much. Very interesting. Actually, focusing a little bit more on the bioelectricity point of view, I was wondering whether all the current ongoing effort in sort of linking electronic neurons, really, which I understand is a different field to what you're trying to do, because you're maybe bringing more the neurons to any cell. You're kind of looking at the bioelectricity of cells, not necessarily of neurons. But I wondered whether there are points of contact with the sort of biointerfaces that look into communicating directly with neurons. Oh, most certainly. It's actually very important for our field for two basic reasons. One is, of course, in terms of useful applications, right, just to think about the applied side of things. I've pitched to a number of places this idea that we've been instrumentizing brains, and so reading out brain activity to, to drive devices and, and so on. But actually, you, you could do this to any part of the body, and, and you could certainly have controllers for robotics, for vehicles, for, uh, for all sorts of purposes that are, in fact, not brains. You know, if you think about an organ like the liver or, you know, or the pancreas, that's, it's very good at managing this kind of dynamic, real-time, multi-dimensional optimization problem of the body, you know, these physiological things and, that go on all the time. And, and we can certainly make use of that in addition to the way we make use of brains. But the more sort of fundamental aspect of this is that people are used to thinking about cracking this neural code, right? So this idea that, that you collect the signals, but then the next critical step is to say, uh, what, what is the information actually that is resident in this bioelectrical pattern from the brain that we can then decode it and make use of it so that we can, we can run devices and, and do, do diagnostics and so on. And that type of approach is really critical for non-neural bioelectrics. And it's, and it's the kind of the number one example I use most when people are unfamiliar with this field and they say, how can tissues hold information in bioelectric circuits that doesn't make any sense and i remind them that that's exactly what happens in the brain and that we've actually had some pretty good success now decoding at least part of that information content from neural activity and that exactly the same thing should be possible outside the body so actually it's a, it's a very related effort so along these lines is there an anatomy of a long-term memory as well can you build structures inside the brain that are capturing memories did you, did you mean in the brain or do you mean outside the brain I mean, in the brain. So the way you can sort of bring the neurology aspect to your own research, can you bring your own research to what's ongoing in terms of understanding the difference between short-term short and long-term memory? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Big picture, I actually think that the kind of work that we're doing in trying to, and, and others, of course, in trying to crack the non-neural bioelectric code is actually going to be a very nice addition to neuroscience because I think we have a more ancient and, and probably more simple system here where it's probably going, in the end, going to be easier to crack this code than to fully crack the neural code. So we do want the advances that we make to be imported back to neuroscience and try to drive advances there. And where that is probably going to happen is the whole area of extreme structural plasticity. There are model systems that we and other people study where the brain during the lifetime of the animal, either through metamorphosis or after injury, can get completely regenerated. So, so after significant damage, it, it regenerates. And so what that means is that we really have a way of starting to ask what happens to memories during brain regeneration. We've done some work on this in planaria and other people have done it in axolotl and so on. What happens to memories when the substrate of those memories is completely sort of taken apart and, and put back together as happens during caterpillar to, to butterfly metamorphosis and so on. And that in turn tells us something very important about how long-term memories are stored. 
because the standard story of, of storage of memories in finely tuned synaptic structures and, and synaptic weights and so on, that story doesn't hold up to some of the plasticity work coming out of developmental neuroscience. And so I think these kind of questions about how bioelectrical information gets sort of solidified in underlying cellular mechanisms, probably cytoskeletal structures, probably, pro, you know, maybe protein, RNA, whatever it's going to turn out to be. I think this kind of work has a lot to say about the actual substrate of memory. And I really liked your point about patterning being a combined effort between the sort of bottom-up emergency from chaos and the sort of top-down regulation that sort of tells you at some point you have to stop once you've made a, a hand, there's no point going forward. Are you more interested in the knowledge aspects or are you interested in the in the application aspect? And actually, can you tell us a bit more about the company you're spinning off and sort of the direct application of your research? Well, there are many potential areas of, of biomedical impact and other types of uh, practical applications. So on the biomedical front, you know, these kinds of things that we're doing in, in, first of all, in bioelectrics, and then more deeply in the storage of memory and tissues, I think this has massive implications down the line for repairing of birth defects, for inducing complex organ regeneration, for tumor reprogramming, which we've we've also shown in, in our group, and then eventually probably aging and degenerative disease and things like this. So those are some areas. Additional areas are synthetic morphology, so artificial living machines. You know, during the talk, I didn't have really time to talk about it, but we've, we've had, and, and of course other people have too, had interesting successes making novel biological organisms, basically. They have new structures and functions, and so that, that's that, that kind of bioengineering beyond synthetic biology reprogramming of single cells I think is going to be huge. The third area of application is actually back to computer science and machine learning because right now one of the barriers to general machine intelligence is prevailing chasing of neuromorphic architectures, specifically meaning trying to make machine learning architectures that try to mimic the very specific architecture of the human brain. And I think you know evolution has been solving difficult problems and doing learning and so on long before brains showed up on the scene. And I think the brain is just one highly derived way of doing things, but much more fundamental processes that we're now discovering in the basal cognition of single cells, of tissues, of organs, this kind of swarm intelligence that is really good at solving certain kinds of problems. I think that's going to have big implications for machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. And so the companies that you're talking about, we are basically in the process of trying to uh, spin off our, our limb regeneration work and some of our cancer work into biomedical applications. And so that's, those, I think, are the, are the early kinds of applied efforts that, that are going to come come to fruition first, and then, and then lots of other things will follow. Thank you. And, and we also always ask what people are interested outside the lab. You can give us a sense of your favorite hobby. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, outdoor photography. I kayak. Uh, most of the time I'm out on the ocean and I, I take a lot of pictures of either macro photography or, you know, birds and sunsets and, and things like this. And you, you get inspiration from nature sometimes about potential experiments. For sure. Uh, it's Yeah, it's a rare morning that I don't come back with some kind of idea having seen something or other. There's, uh, especially right around sunrise, there's a lot of interesting things going on in terms of uh, the, uh, the biological world out there. Thank you. And just to close up, if we can go back to the sort of initial point of multidisciplinary research, and you have some suggestion for junior scientists who are inspired by your work and either want to work with you on one specific field or want to sort of do something that brings in together different fields. So what would you recommend to do in, in the context of the current academic structure? Well, what I recommend to my own students and people who contact me is this. 
it really is going to be up to you to build a toolkit for yourself to allow you to approach problems in a novel, unfettered fashion. It, it's still the case that nobody's going to do it for you. Maybe someday that will be, be easy to, to find programs that are like that. Nowadays, it's still pretty much up to you. And so what that means is you should go out and study the very best examples of all of the things that you think you're going to need. So you, you probably will need some form of molecular biology. So you go and you do the best molecular biology that you can. And you may need neuroscience and you, and you study the, the best neuroscience that you can, computer science, physics, um, cognitive science, all, all of these kinds of things. You know, I encourage my students to read very broadly and to get preparation in these fields. And then you put them together. In practical terms, what that means is that you should really soak up the techniques, the concepts, and everything else in these other fields, but not too much to the point where what you don't want to absorb are the prevailing ideas in each of those fields about what's possible, what's unlikely, how in general things work, where research should be going, these kind of meta things. I think it's up to you to build them from scratch for yourself. It's very easy to end up uh, limited and locked into particular silos if you if you adopt uh, others' view of where things ought to go and what to do, you know, these, these things that you should develop for yourself. But the foundation of, of technology and what's been found and what's been achieved and the mistakes that have been made and so on, the, the, you know, that's gold and you, and you should, you know, pay very careful attention to that. So it's a little bit like think globally and act locally. Locally is in a specific toolkit, but kind of keep in mind the broader connection of what you want to build. Yeah, that, that's fair. And and I think also there's a time component. So I, I went to graduate school in a genetics program and I got a PhD in straight up genetics. And I knew I wasn't going to do genetics later on. I knew I was going to, if I was going to do any of this, I would do some very, very weird interdisciplinary things. But I also knew that in order to do that, you have to speak the language that people speak and you have to know the state of the art tools. And so I went to a genetics program. I didn't talk about any of the things I was really interested in during that time of my PhD. I didn't try to make an interdisciplinary project at the time. I just you know, sort of kept my head down and learned the best molecular developmental biology that I could so that I could deploy it later, but of course, in a very different way. So that's what I mean. Go and learn the best of all the tools and, and then put them together in your own way. And, and don't listen to anybody that has meta advice about how what ought to be tried and what which things make sense and, and so on thank you this is great thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us to the podcast great thank you very much thank you.